Today's reading is Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 9. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiris. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripaf, and Togermath. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Shabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to, into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rebothir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Lebabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamethites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza. And in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hal, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his father's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almudad, Shelpa, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimil, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. Those are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their languages, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from them there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Thank you, Mari, for reading that so excellently. We all realize it's a bit of a tongue twister of a passage. Um, For those of you who I haven't met, my name's Will. And before we dive in to look at Genesis this morning, there's just one thing to briefly mention. And that's something we're calling Genesis on the Beach. And it's just a thought about helping us all to get into these long narrative sections in the book of Genesis this next year. Is if why don't we set us a challenge of reading Genesis this summer? Perhaps we could do a chapter a day or find a reading plan online that suits our schedule. And it would really help us as we carry on looking through the book the rest of this year. But before we get into the rest of Genesis, let's turn to look at chapters 10 and 11. So it'd be great if you could keep your Bibles open in front of you. And if you find it helpful, there's a handout that was placed in the Bible when you came in. And before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to gather together as a church family. We thank you for your word and that you do speak to us through it. We pray that you would help us not to harden our hearts to your voice, but to grow as we listen to you this morning. Amen. Now, often when we look at the world around us, we might find ourselves asking this question. Why is the world the way it is? Why does it look like this? And in Genesis so far, we've been answering some of those questions. Like, how on the one hand can the world be so wonderful and beautiful, yet be so chaotic and painful? How can man be so amazing and wonderfully made, capable of beautiful things, Actually, at the same time, humans are able, of such, able to do such evil and commit such violence. How have we gone from a good world to a fallen one? How have we gone from a friendly world to a fraught one? Well, Genesis has answered some of those questions for us. And today, our passage is going to help answer a different question we might have. And that is, how can humans, on the one hand, be so similar all over the world... We're so similar to one another, but on the other, we're so diverse and different. How is the world like that? We probably know that in the world today, there's about 200 or countries, and that there's about 7,000 different languages spoken across the world. But if we all came from one family, how on earth are there hundreds of countries and thousands of languages? And why are those countries and those peoples always at odds with each other and fighting each other rather than working together? How do we go from a united world to a dispersed one? Now, I imagine lots of us here don't live with our parents anymore, or we probably don't even live in the same city or country we were born in either. But I don't know about you, but at least for me, when I go back to visit, sometimes there might be an accent change, but I imagine we all still spoke the same language as our parents. 
Please do correct me if I'm wrong about your experience, but I imagine that you went home and you were still able to understand them. So how can we live in a world that started from one family and yet we can't understand each other anymore? Well, to help us understand this, Genesis gives us a genealogy of Noah's sons. It says, chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And in this genealogy, we're going to learn about where the nations and the languages come from. So let's turn to chapter 10, where we're going to see a multinational family tree showing our unity and our diversity. Because perhaps as we read through the genealogy, you notice something a little bit odd about the names of some of the children. Let's look again at verse 6, where it says, The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Now, as we read those, they sound more like an atlas than they do our family Christmas card list, don't they? Or maybe in verses 16 to 18, where we see that no longer are the descendants listed as individuals, but as whole tribes. We see it there, don't we? The Jebusites, the Amorites, and so on. Now, these clues show us that although this is the family line of the sons of Noah, it's more than an ordinary family tree. We're reading a family tree of the nations of the world. Now, bar a few, maybe like Egypt and Canaan, I imagine most of them are lost on us today. But to the people of Israel, first reading Genesis, well, this would have outlined many of the nations that they saw, that they knew, who lived amongst them. And they'd have been reading this to teach them two important lessons. Firstly, to see the unity of the nations, that they all come from one family. And secondly, to see the diversity of the nations. So let's look first at the unity. Now, across chapter 10, there are 70 different descendants mentioned. 70 being used in Hebrew to show a completeness or a wholeness. So this family is meant to represent every nation across the world. So that means if you're from the UK or Uganda or you're from the Middle East to the middle of the Pacific, where well, every single one belongs to the same family. So that means that as Israel looked out at the world around them and saw the other nations, well, there's no place for them to think that they're separate, above, or better than anyone else they looked at. And that's the same for us today. We're to see the unity of the nations that we're all from one family. But aside from seeing that all are ultimately related, this genealogy also shows us the division of humanity. Did you notice maybe at the end of each of the sons of Noah, there's a very similar comment in verses 5, 20, and 31. And in each one, it highlights the distinctiveness of the clans, the languages, the nations, and the lands these different sons and different nations lived in. We saw this theme too in verse 18, 
For it's expressly told to us at the end of the verse, afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. Or in verse 25, this man Eber even names his son Peleg, which literally means division. He saw the state of the world and he named his son after the division of the nations. It's clear, isn't it, in the genealogy that the world is full of nations who are dispersing and dividing, that they're forming more and more distinct groups. Now, sadly, this would have been too obvious for the people of Israel that the nations had divided and that they were not one anymore. And that didn't mean they always got along very well. For example, with Egypt, who we saw in verse 6, well, Israel knew all too well what had happened in slavery only years before. Or Canaan, who they could see across the Jordan, who caused them such fear and with whom they would soon be at war. It was clear to Israel that the nations were divided and different. Or if we were to set the task of writing down a list of the countries today, well, I'm sure none of us would get very far before we'd written down two with whom you could see they had serious issues between them and with whom they really didn't get along. Although the families of the world come from, sorry, the nations of the world come from one family, they have become divided. They've become distinct, separated by land and language. Now, whilst on the one hand that's encouraging to see the command to Adam and to Noah being fulfilled, it might leave us with the question of how did they become so divided? Why are they at odds with each other? Well, to help us understand that, the author has given us a narrative in chapter 11 to explain what the genealogy means and why it happened. So let's turn to chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. And that brings us to our second point, where we're going to see a defiant construction project desiring our name and rule. In verse, uh, sorry, it reads in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. This narrative in chapter 11 is going to help explain why and how chapter 10 took place, taking us back to before all that separation had happened. Because we, we know that in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, well, we have a situation where all the different languages and nations exist. Well, now we're back in verse 1, aren't we, to a place where they all exist with the same language. So this story isn't happening after the genealogy, but it's explaining the genealogy. And in the story, it, it looks positive to begin with, doesn't it? Verse 2, as the people migrated from the east, there seems to be some amount of separation going on. But it doesn't take long, does it, before they find somewhere comfy to lay their head and they plan to settle in the land of Shinar. The end of verse 2 reads... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, whilst that might all seem innocent enough, it's just a group of people settling down. We're used to that, aren't we, in the world today? Well, let's think back to Genesis 9-1 and God's command to Noah, where God said, Be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth. But here in Shinar, the people decide not to spread, but to settle. Not to fill the earth, but to found a city. Because, and they don't just uh, settle down, do they? But they plan, in, plan to put in some quite major roots. We see that in verse 3, if we read it together. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. We see here these people, well, they're using the latest in construction technology to build a city with a major attraction. Now, we're probably used to seeing us and humans all over the world loving to build big buildings, aren't we? We've seen that since the pyramids of Giza all the way to the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. And whilst these do showcase some of the best in our construction capabilities and their genuine feats of human ingenuity and skill, they also reveal some of our innermost motives. That when we build staggering projects, well, we often do so to build a name for ourselves. We do it for our glory. We see this, uh, for example, uh, you might have seen on the news about this new city that's proposed in Saudi Arabia for stretching over 100 miles through the desert and imaginatively called the Line City. Now, it's part of their 2030 vision for the future. And here's what the king of Saudi Arabia had to say about their vision. My primary goal is to be an exemplary and leading nation in all aspects. So they're building new projects and audacious cities to make a name for themselves, to be an exemplary and leading nation in the world. Because that is what humans do. We build things to build our own name. And we see in Genesis 4, that's not a new idea. That's not something that's just happened in our age. But verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we are dispersed over the face of the whole world. We see here the sin of the people of Babel because they wanted God's glory and they wanted God's rule. They wanted God's glory, we see, because they wanted to build a name for themselves. By building a tower high into the heavens, they attempted to have a glory which only God has. And we can see they wanted God's rule because they expressly do this to defy God's commands. It says they do it lest they are dispersed. They want to defy what God said. They don't want to fill the earth. And they want to rule instead. That is what the fallen human heart is like. We've seen it time and time again in Genesis so far, haven't we? With Cain, with Lamech, and here again at Babel. 
that although the flood happened, although God's judgment came, the same issue remains. The issue we saw in Genesis 6-5, which said, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil only continually. We, in our wickedness, are trying to build a name for ourselves and trying to rule apart from God. And that's not just as individuals, but we see at Babel that we unite together in defiance of God. It's in our pride and our sin that we unite and we do so without God. That's what the tower was. It was an expression of their name and their rule. So we see, we see here in Genesis that no amount of human unity can actually solve the problem of the human heart. The same problems remains. In fact, when they build the tower, they only magnify the problem and grow it at an even bigger level. So having seen that nature of sin on display, that might leave us with the question, how will God respond to our sin? And that leads us onto verses 5 to 9, where we're going to see a dispersal of peoples highlighting God's judgment and mercy. Verse 5 reads, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. See, the people of Babel had spent many hours laboring away getting their resources ready, firing up the kilns to burn the bricks. But after all that work, God still has to stoop down to see their teeny-weeny city and their tiny tower. It's a pitiful attempt by the people to build something that God has to stoop down to see. And once God sees it, we see in verse 6 what he says. It says, Behold, They are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth. God goes down, and he's immediately able to stop the people in their tracks by confusing their language and dispersing them, fulfilling God's commandment to Noah and stopping the construction of the tower. It's actually in complete irony, isn't it, that after God does this, that the city does get a name for itself, not for their impressive work, But verse 9, it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Their city had become a byword for confusion. Babel, you know the place, it's where they babble. That is why the generations of the sons of Noah have become distinct with different nations and languages because God turned up at Babel and he confused the languages and dispersed the people. 
From this point on, language, culture, national identities are not just a part of this world, but they are a constant barrier to any form of human global unity. We've seen this, haven't we, throughout history, that empires and other movements try to unite people. But in the end, empires fall, movements fail, but old divisions remain. Now, I realize that might be a slightly depressing take on the state of international affairs in our world. And I do hope and pray we don't just think about this to be depressed by the state of our world, but actually that it would grow our confidence in God and it would help us to trust him and his word more. Because as we read these chapters, I pray that they really do describe why the world is the way it is. How on the one hand we are so similar all over the world, yet on the other so deeply divided and often quite distinct. That whilst we, when we realize that, it will help us to trust God and trust his word more and more because they truly do reveal what this world is like. But these verses don't just help us to trust God more. They also tell us more about what he is like as well as what we're like. We've spent time already thinking about how our sin is expressed in Babel. So let's look at what we learn about God's character in how he responds to Babel. And we're going to see there are two big reasons in why God disperses the people and confuses the languages. So firstly, he does so in judgment. We saw, didn't we, that humanity didn't want to be dispersed, but ultimately God is the one who rules and he will judge sin and those who defy him. God confuses our languages because he wanted to stop people freely speaking together as they defied his rule. God will not let that happen forever. He will judge humanity for our sin. We saw it at the flood, and we're seeing it here again too. But we we see in these verses that it's not just judgment that he brings to confuse our languages but that also he does it in mercy. Firstly, because well, he does remember his promise and doesn't wipe out the world in a flood again. But also, it's merciful in confusing language. Let's think about why that is, and let's turn to verse 6 again, where it said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning Of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, we might read that and think this suggests that God's under threat. He's just feeling a little bit petty and wants to fight back. But God can't be under threat because he so easily deals with the problem the next verse. Humanity doesn't stand a chance. So instead of showing that God's under threat, I think it shows that God is merciful because God knows the evil intentions of our heart, Genesis 6 5. And now we've seen that that's not just at an individual level, but it's at a national level. And if God let us continue to speak in one language, continue to be one united people, 
well, then that would ultimately become a force for evil, not a force for good. That just like how Babel used their unity to defy God, well, so in every age, it would be used to defy the Lord and disobey him. God in his mercy and his common grace stepped in to frustrate our ability to commit even larger acts of evil by stopping us being able to communicate across the world easily. It's actually safer for us to live in a fallen world where we do speak different languages and we have been dispersed because the alternative is terrifying and sinful. We can see both of these effects on our languages today, can't we? Perhaps we're used to it being frustrating and difficult at times. Maybe you've been on holiday and you couldn't really understand the menu and realize that frog's legs came out. It's frustrating when language gets in the way of a good meal. But it's not just the trivial, it's also the serious. Here's the UN's vision statement that the Secretary General outlined a few days ago. To bring together the best of humanity, to rebuild communities, to rescue the planet, to recover economies and restore hope. That's what the UN intends to do. And wouldn't it be great if actually instead of endless debates through headphones and translations, instead of countries that are at war with each other or disagreeing with each other, arguing, we could all sit down in one room, speak easily together and sort out the problems. We'd be able to restore hope, recover economies, rescue the planet, wouldn't we? Why does God make it harder to do these good things? Or, as Christians, we might think, well, if I didn't have to learn a new language, if I didn't have to understand a different culture, well, couldn't we share the gospel more easily around the world? Why do we have to go through all this extra difficulty? Why couldn't God just make it that bit easier for us? That might be what we think, that it's just a bit frustrating that God surely thinks it would be easier if we spoke one language. But we need to trust God's mercy that ultimately anything that we could use for good, any aspect about having one tongue and being one people that would be used to make the world better, but it would be hijacked by our hearts to make a more evil and more sinful world. Because we saw in verse 6, that nothing would be impossible for us. No scale of sin would be limited because we'd be able to organize it easily together and our hearts would lead it to sin. God's dispersal and confusion has ultimately helped to restrain sin in the world to protect us from the effects of a more sinful world. And we, we know the kindness of God in languages in many other ways. We don't see it just in restraining sin. I'm sure we all know it's a, it's a beautiful thing when we look around the world and there's people that speak differently to us, different cuisines, different cultures, things to explore and enjoy. Somehow God in his judgment and mercy can use the same thing to both judge and bless. But we might be thinking, well, actually, as we look around the world, division seems to be causing real problems. Maybe we see racism or xenophobia. Maybe we see wars. And we think, 
Well, why, can't, why is that happening? Why would God allow those to happen? Well, it's clear in this section that the solution to that problem is not the common unity of man because that would be used for more sin. That if humanity is united, it wouldn't fix the problems. It would only make them worse. Instead, in Acts 17, we see the solution, and that is through our division. Acts 17, 26 says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they would seek God. Paul describes how we have different nations and we've been given allotted boundaries for them, not as a, not as a bad thing, but as a way to help us seek the Lord. Somehow, through this judgment on sin, in his mercy, God uses it to draw people to him. We see a glimmer of that solution back in the genealogy through the line of Peleg, that the one who's named after division, well, through him, we're going to see in the rest of Genesis, we get Abraham, and through Abraham, we get Jesus. And in the Lord Jesus, we have one who is making things new, that Christ died to redeem a people. That doesn't mean there won't be language issues and other divide problems in the church, But this does mean that we can try and live through them and live it out, knowing that we are part of God's people who he will bring to be with him in perfect unity if we trust in the Lord Jesus. And that we will use that to glorify him and not ourselves. We see this started dramatically back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, where people from many different nations speaking different languages could all understand Peter as he preached the gospel to them, that language barriers were going and that nationality was no longer going to stop people being united, but only in the Lord Jesus. And we will see one day that this will be completely undone, that if we are in him, we will see in Revelation 5, 9 to 10, what's in store, where it says, For you were slain, And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is redeeming people, dealing with the problem of our sinful hearts so that we might be united in his kingdom, glorifying him and accepting his rule. Although the nations might be divided in our world, due to God's judgment on our sin, actually God is mercifully kind to us in it and that he will bring true unity which works in his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that although our sin is great, that you are merciful in your judgment to us. We thank you that in the division and difficulty of this world, the frustration of different languages, you do bring us to seek you and to find you. And you pray you'd help us to trust you more and to be all the more thankful for what the Lord Jesus does for us today. Amen.